the essence, the secret of his power. And so they said, teach us to pray, even as John taught his disciples how to pray. And then he lays out a framework for prayer that is a lot more than a framework for prayer. He lays out the guidelines that all of us need to have for living a life of purpose. Because Jesus would never separate prayer from purpose. So you could actually use the Lord's Prayer as your personal mission statement as something that guides you, as something that gives you an understanding of how to live. That's why I'm calling this kingdom living or life in the kingdom. And he begins by talking about that which is the most important, and then he ends it with the most important thing. And, uh, and so let's start with the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Our Father, who lives in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins and transgressions of others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, both now and forever and ever. Amen. And so the first thing he brings out is... Um, our Father. Now, why would he talk about the relationship we're supposed to have with the Father? Well, I believe that each part of this prayer, whether it is a phrase or a sentence, actually is a category. Someone say category. category. It's a category that triggers a topical understanding of Scripture that you can preach off of. So everything he said is a macro theme in the Word of God that actually gives us an understanding that we need to have. And so he summarizes the most important things in terms of living in the kingdom in this uh, prayer. So I believe it would, you could recite the prayer. It's very powerful. I know those of us who are not denominational don't like reciting things, but I believe you're supposed to recite things. I believe you're supposed to memorize Scripture. I believe you're supposed to uh, you know, have a handle on scripture in that way, and it starts in the head, but then it gets into the heart. And so it's a very good thing to recite, but more than reciting it, each line is a category that gives us an understanding of God and how to live. And so it's no accident that he starts off by saying our Father. The word Father in, uh, in the original language there is Abba, and that would be a very informal, endearing way of relating to God. It wasn't just some formal thing, our Father. Uh, it wasn't just relating to God as our Creator. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim means strong, faithful ones. It has to do with God and His power, uh, when he, His creative power. Uh, you know, another word for God is Jehovah, which has to do with, or Yahweh, has to do with God, the covenantal God. Um, but in this particular case, we are not to relate to God just as creator and just in, in way of a covenant. But Jesus is bringing out an amazing point of God and that God wants to like us, not just love us. Yeah. That is to say, when he says, Abba, or Papi, or Daddy, that's what would be the equivalence today in the vernacular. Um, what he's saying is he wants you to have an emotional relationship, not just a spiritual, not just a forensic, a legal, not just I'm justified by grace. Uh, you know, I said the sinner's prayer somehow. You know, uh, my name went through the barcode of heaven, and now I have a free pass to heaven. Uh, no, there is a relational, powerful, experiential aspect of this. Daddy, poppy. Uh, can you imagine uh, you have grandchildren and, uh, you know, they call you poppy. They call you daddy. Uh, you know, they, uh, you know, or mima, if you're a woman or a grandma, whatever words you use, I don't know over here. But, um, but an endearing term, the grandchildren say that and imagine you just, you know, ignore them and, yeah, you know. Legally and relational, you have the right to say that. Um, I'm glad you know that, and that's all. Let's move on. No, you would grab them and put them on your lap and hug them. So when he said, our Father, 
it connotes more than just being saved, more than just being born again. Oftentimes in the kingdom of God, um, you know, in the body of Christ, let me just rephrase that. In the body of Christ, we believe the gospel is merely forgiveness of sins. When we talk about the gospel, we just talk about the last six hours of the life of Christ, his death and burial, and then three days later, his resurrection. Well, you know what? That gave us an opportunity to have access to the Father, but the gospel is a lot more than just being forgiven. The gospel is about giving us a new life. The gospel is about having us live with God and walk with God and experience God and know God and make him known. So the gospel, actually, if it was just about the, the cross of Christ, then why would it say in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus? And it says that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. How could he preach the gospel if he had not yet died yet? The gospel is a, a lot more than just the cross. The cross gives us the opportunity by his blood to have a relationship with him. But then the whole thing is opened up for eternity to get to know him, to be with him, to walk with him, to experience him. The gospel is not an event. The gospel is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's not just saying an altar call, you know, at an altar call, Jesus come in my life, and that's the end of it. A lot of young preachers today in the evangelical world think the gospel is just uh, uh, reduced to, you know, God having... Uh, you know, uh, mercy on us at the moment of salvation and the rest of our life, we're just going to God for forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. No, the gospel is about uh, developing. It's about spiritual formation. It's about maturation. It's about growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And yes, you could come to a point where you do not sin that often. You could actually have conscious fellowship in God's presence for a long period of time, for weeks, even months, without even uh, being aware consciously of sin. You can get to that point in your life where you have unbroken fellowship with God, where you're not just depending on, uh, you know, worship services on Sunday. You could be in the presence of God on a bus, on a train, plane, automobile, washing dishes, uh, driving your motorcycle, working out in the gym. Uh, doing your plumbing, doing your teaching, doing your mothering and your fathering and changing your di the diapers of the kids. You can have unbroken fellowship because this is what it's all about. And so the gospel is a way. It's not an institution. It's not a denomination. It's not a building. The gospel is a way of life. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone uh, enters through me, he will be saved to go in and out and find pasture. It's amazing to meditate on passages like that, the depth of, of the, the things that God wants to pull us into. And so when he says, our Father, that was intrinsic to our relationship with God. The world knows him as a higher power. The world may know him as creator. The world may know him as the most high or God. But we know him as Papi. We know him as Daddy. We know him as the most endearing person that we could ever have in our life. It's amazing. Isn't that amazing? And that's the privilege. That's what separates us from the world is that we are now sons of the living God. There's only one unique, only begotten son of God, but he is the first fruits of those who believe, and he's our elder brother, and now we are sons of God. That the word of God teaches us uh, we're going to manifest uh, in, the, in, in more and more in the world. And so, as we understand this, we realize that uh, God has called us to be his sons. And there is a relationship that is predicated on us being his sons that is essential to prayer and worship. You have to get that part right before you even know how to worship, before you know how to have petitions and prayer and even kingdom living and that's why that was the first thing mentioned our father not an accident then he says hallowed be your name hallowed be your name that has to do with worship and so 
you know, you have to have this father thing correct because if you don't have that relationship settled, then the worship will not even be correct. The worship will be at a kilter. And then he says, hallowed be your name. And so hallowed be your name is not just, again, an event. That's not just a momentary time that you carve out to pray on a Sunday uh, or, you know, your 15 minutes of prayer in the morning, whatever it is. Hallowed be your name means to live a Christ-focused life. That means to live a worshipful life. It means that you're grateful to God. It means that we are, uh, you know, never taking advantage of His grace. That we're always desperate for Him. That we're always honoring Him. That we never get so familiar with Him that He becomes too familiar and He becomes common. The problem with the church is we've forgotten how unfamiliar we were with God before we were born again. Uh, the problem we have is we've become so familiar with the presence of God that we've neglected the person of God. We have become so familiar that uh, now he's unfamiliar and we think he's familiar. You understand what I'm just saying? Yeah. And so sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And so what he's saying is, hallowed be thy name, meaning that we need to live a life that's Christocentric, a life that is given to worship, a life that lives in worship. In other words, it's not just words, it's not just songs. Everything that you do is an act of worship. When you work, when you care for your children, when you're preaching, and when you're living, it's all hallowed be your name. That's why Paul says in Colossians, uh, whatever you do, even eating and drinking, let it all be done to the glory of God. Well, eating and drinking is the most primeval thing that we do. If you don't have that, your mind is going to be so distracted, you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, as some of the great psychologists have talked about and, and philosophers, you'll be so distracted that all you'll be thinking about is where your next meal is coming from. So that's the basic fundamental principle of life and survival. So when he says, um, whatever you do, even eating and drinking, do it unto the Lord, that means that you're very breath, you're very primeval. As existence, your existential state, reason, validity, your motive, everything, as soon as you wake up, do it for the glory of God. Isn't that powerful? And that's why he says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, that takes the place of the meat and the drink. That is our first principles. That is the first thing that we think about. That is our landing place, but that is our start every day. Is that life. That's what he means. That hallowed be your name. Your life is Christ-focused and centered. Then he says, Our Father, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, one thing I want to mention here before I move on. It's important that he said, Our Father, who lives in heaven, because there is no perfect father on the earth. So he had to say who lives in heaven because he's distinguishing between the only perfect father and the fathers on the earth, meaning that, you know, in our particular community, uh, we had many fatherless men. We had many fatherless women, for that matter. We had men who were absentee fathers, men who would stay with a woman for a few years and then leave, um, men who might have been home but had no emotional connection, they didn't spend time with their children. And so when you call God Father, uh, it becomes a stumbling block in at-risk communities or in particular instances when, let's say, even the, the female was abused by their father or they, the guy was beaten by the father or there was emotional abuse or whatever in the home. So when you say Father, referring to God, well, if you had a good relationship with your father, man, that's great. 
But if you didn't, or if you didn't know your father, or you had a bad taste in your mouth for a father, that was not a good way of connecting with God. So that's why Jesus said, our Father who is in heaven. I also believe that the implications of that are so vast. That means that even if you have an orphan spirit because you've been wounded, you've been rejected, you're walking around depression and fear and envy and competition because you never had that affirmation from your own father, what he's saying is our Father who lives in heaven is going to heal you. That Father is the perfect Father. That Father is going to restore you. That's the hidden implications of that statement, Father who lives in heaven. Meaning, maybe you didn't have a good experience with your earthly father, but our Father who lives in heaven is your Abba, is your Papi, is your Daddy. He doesn't just love you, he likes you, and he wants to wrap his arms around you. Isn't that powerful? Wow. That's deep, deep stuff. And so, this Father is the one who lives in heaven, this father is the perfect father. Uh, I know I haven't been a perfect, perfect father. I'm not a perfect husband, perfect father. Um, and I tried to spend time with my kids, and I still miss the mark. Um, you know, so you can imagine people who didn't know the Lord and had kids and just you know, didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and so the world is, you know, as I was talking about last night, I believe the greatest curse in the whole earth is fatherlessness. And that's why before Jesus came, John the Baptist had to come in the spirit and anointing of Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't have come. The curse on the earth had to be broken to welcome Christ. And if you want to have a great move of God in your church, just start fathering the people. Uh, you start receiving fathers and mothers in the church. If you're a son and if you're a parent, you start loving on them and creating an atmosphere of a family, family of families, and then you'll start releasing some things because you'll be, a, uh, a, you know, a conduit of our Father who lives in heaven. That's going to be so powerful. Our Father who lives in heaven. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I want God to like me, just not just to love me. God so loves the world. Yes, but I believe that God also likes us because he wants us to be his children, his daddy. Isn't that amazing? And then he says, after he says, hallowed be your name, then he says to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth. We still haven't gotten a personal prayer yet. We still haven't gotten to petitions. We still didn't get to our daily bread. The body of Christ jumps from you know, the prayer, the definition of prayer in the body of Christ oftentimes is they just have a problem. They go right to God and say, God, you know, I need this money. I need this relationship. I need this marriage. I need this, you know, home. I need this. I need that. And God is merciful. He's not legalistic. And, you know, he can still answer those kind of prayers. Um, but if we're really going to pray the way God wants us to pray and live the way God wants us to live, before we pray for ourselves, we need to deal with the things of his heart. That's why he says to pray that his kingdom to come. What is that? That means he wants his rule on the earth. He wants alignment with him. Um, the only things not under his direct alignment in the world, the only things are human hearts, right? Political systems and social systems of the earth. That's the only thing. Because everything else is under his rule. Natural law, creation, the environment, the cosmos, the laws of lift, the laws of gravity, subatomic physics. Uh, you know, everything in creation. It says the uh, trees in the field clap their hands. All creation is groaning until the manifestation of the sons of God because they know that something's not right. The whole universe understands who God is, except for human beings who are not saved and some of the systems they've created. So when he said to pray for his kingdom to come, what he's saying is I want the human hearts that you're in contact with to feel and to sense and to know the living God through you. Any systems that you can influence, influence them for God. Uh, any way you can become a gatekeeper and be able to displace some of the ungodly leaders or ungodly systems so that you can begin to bring the principles of the kingdom of God in the world. Go ahead. As he said, 
to pray, meaning this is how we live. We want to bring God's reign. The word kingdom means the reign of God, the reign of Christ. He wants us to pray to live in a way that we will bring the reign of God, not R-A-I-N, although that's the Holy Ghost coming down. We're talking about R-E-I-G-N, the reign, the, the kingdom of God, the rule, the government of God. He wants us to live in such a way that we represent his government, his power, his authority on the earth, and we help bring it in our spheres of influence. So then he said to pray for his kingdom to come, and that, that means that whatever you're called to do, not just church work. I don't say full-time ministry meaning the church. When I say full-time ministry, I mean being a plumber, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a politician, being an athlete. Whatever you're called to be, you are a full-time minister. So when I say I'm in full-time ministry, I always say full-time church ministry. So this way, marketplace leaders and people don't think that they're not in the ministry. The ministry just means to serve. We're all servants of God. You're supposed to be a servant of God in every field. And that's why he said to pray for his kingdom to come. If we think that only church people are in the ministry, then what we're saying is God doesn't have a right to reign in the marketplace. And God could only reign in a building for two hours on Sunday. So that's why we have to watch our language. He said for his kingdom to come, and then his will to be done. His will cannot be done unless there's government. His kingdom's got to be the groundwork for that. Well, that's a whole other message. And then... He says, where on earth, as it is in heaven, the focus of your calling is not heaven, it's earth. Again, it's not just barcode Christianity where you get saved and somehow, you know, God goes like this and you got a free pass to heaven. That's what Christianity is to a lot of people. They don't make a connection between their salvation and living. It's just about going to heaven and they live like a devil during the week. Or they try hard but they don't see the connection between God and what they're doing in the marketplace. What they're doing as a student, what they're doing with their children. And so um, he says to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, meaning that everything that is done on earth that you're supposed to do comes under the realm of the reign of God. Isn't that great? On earth. He didn't say for his kingdom to come in church. That's assumed. He didn't even pray or tell us to pray for his church to come. The main theme of the Bible is not the church, it's the kingdom. The main agent of the kingdom is the church. The church is not the kingdom but the church is the main agent of the kingdom to bring God's reign on the earth. See, that's the difference there. The kingdom of God is God's rule that comes from the throne of God. And so you have the general rule of God, but then you have the actual manifestation of God's rule in people's hearts being turned to Christ in salvation, in obedience, and influencing their own, whatever they're called to do for God. And so he says to pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth. Someone say on earth. The focus of Christianity is the earth. You're going to heaven anyway. God wants you to learn how to be a steward, to learn how to be responsible, to learn how to grow, to learn how to put Christian principles into practice in your daily life. That's why the followers of Christ were called disciples. What does that mean? That means if you don't have discipline, you can't follow Jesus. Discipline means you have focus. It means you have priorities in life. That means you're seeking first the kingdom of God. It means it implies time management. It means to go against your feelings and show up for church when you're tired. It means to, uh, you know, to pray even when you don't feel like it, to worship when you don't feel like it. It means to put your flesh under or even if you don't feel like it. I remember one time I was so depressed. And, um, I don't remember what happened, but I was so depressed. I told my wife, I don't want to hear from you or anybody else. I'm just getting out of here. And I had in my mind, I was just going to go to a place called Shore Road near the water. And I was just going to veg out out there and feel sorry for myself. And, uh, and so I was about to walk out. And in those days, we didn't have cell phones. 
And I didn't care about it. The only thing I felt like was hopelessness, and I just wanted to be alone. And then as I was walking out the door, I just remembered a passage in the Word of God. In Psalm 92, it said, it is good to praise the Lord. It didn't say that it's good when I feel like it. It just said it is good. So as an act of faith, I said to myself, well, the Bible says it's good to praise the Lord. So before I walk out this door, I'm going to time it for 30 seconds. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm just going to use my will. I don't feel like it. I'm going to praise the Lord for 30 seconds. And so for 30 seconds, I focused on God. And I said, I love you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. Well, after 30 seconds, I got filled with the Holy Ghost and I never left the house. That's what it means to be a disciple. You discipline yourself. You prioritize. You focus. Um, and so the calling is the earth. That leaves it all wide open. That means that the earth is the Lord's, not just the church. And then he says, after all of that, after he says to pray for your king, his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, as it is in heaven, um, to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, meaning there's no rebellion in heaven, so what I want you to do is bring my reign and my government on the earth. There's not much in the word of God about heaven. So when he says to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, if you think it means that we try to mimic what it's like in heaven, well, there's hardly any passages in the whole Bible about heaven. Because the Bible is not a book about heaven. It's a book about how to steward the earth, how to manage the planet, how to be a faithful person in, in do, doing, uh, bringing God into everyday life. That's what the focus of the Bible is. It's the most practical book ever written. So why would it say for his kingdom to come on earth, his reign to come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, we don't know how much, you know, much about heaven. So uh, I, I know some preachers think it means, uh, you know, to mimic the streets of gold that we find in the book of Revelation. That's why they have golden toilet bowls. Um, you, know, uh, you know, it talks about having streets of gold and, you know, diamonds and all of this stuff and this incredible uh, uh, fluid kind of atmosphere. And it's not talking about trying to recreate that superficially by, by having a lot of money and, and turning a house into something that looks like that. What it's really talking about is when you go to heaven, it says in Revelation 12, 12 that Satan has been cast out. There's no more rebellion. In heaven, there's perfect submission and alignment under the Lordship of Christ. So when he tells us to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he's talking about is every realm that you're involved in, get rid of the rebellion, trying to bring it under the Lordship of Christ. Whatever realm you're called to, whatever your assignment is, and then he says to pray, after all that, give us this day our daily bread. Well, that's the favorite part of the body of Christ. All the preaching is about daily bread. How to get your miracle. Seven steps to your happiness. How to feel good about yourself. And, you know, all of that has truth. But we bypass the kingdom. We bypass what is dear to God's heart. We've forgotten that Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom... And his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you anyway. So what we do is we jump to our daily bread. We worship maybe formally for 10 minutes just to get it out of the way. But then we jump into, oh, my husband's a, a, you know, a disgrace. And God, straighten him out. Or I need to get married. I need money. I need this and I need that. Well, if you really want to have your prayers answered on a more regular basis, First, you cultivate that relationship as a son. Second, and then once you do that, you'll understand what God's will is. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart anyway. And then it says if you live a life of worship, then it says you deal with the things of his kingdom. When I pray, I stop praying in tongues. I'll start worshiping. I don't just stop praying for myself. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something that maybe you're not even going to understand. I very rarely pray for myself. I can't even remember the last time I prayed for myself. 
When you seek first the kingdom of God, there's so much favor. God just lavishes gifts on you. He just gives you everything you need. Probably what I pray for is God give me wisdom. Uh, very rarely do I pray. I have prayed for myself, but not that often. Because when you do these things, God beats you to it. He says he knows what you need before you ask. He knows what your needs are. If you are just focused on God, God will release everything that you need. Matter of fact, a lot of things you're praying for, he can't give you because he can't trust you because your heart isn't on God. If you seek first God's kingdom, he can release the very things that you need. I thank God that God hasn't answered all my prayers. Looking back, some of the things I wanted weren't even good for me. And people's hearts get bitter towards God. Why? Because they don't know God. That's why the first thing is our father. Cultivate that sonship, that relationship with God. And so he says, then you can pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread is a metaphor for all of your needs. And notice he says daily bread. A lot of times we want to use and exercise faith in such a way that we'll have enough bread for the next five years. It's almost like we want to use our faith so that we don't have to use faith anymore. He says daily bread. That's not just food. That's not just money. I mean, man, I live on the edge. I have to believe God every day for things, relational things, money, uh, favor, uh, different things that have to come into place. And so a lot of times we want everything settled for the next five, ten years, and yet, you know, hey, God says, pray for daily bread. It, it really comes from the Old Testament. Uh, when they were in the wilderness, the manner came day by day. When they tried to save it overnight, it spoiled. That's what living the life of faith is. When you do what God wants you to do, it's so exciting. It's so risky to your flesh that you have to believe for daily provision. Isn't that amazing? Even if you're okay financially, there's other areas. You will have to believe God for. Then he says, after he says, give us this day our daily bread. Um, and then he says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's amazing how he didn't first start with forgiveness of sins, but cultivating that relationship. And that's not really necessarily talking about salvation. That's talking about more communion with God. He's assuming they're all children of God already. Um, and basically what that is teaching us is that when you are kingdom focused, now listen, hold on to your seat. When you are kingdom focused, when your relationship with God as a son is cultivated, it will expand your capacity to forgive other people. Isn't that amazing? If you have thin skin and are easily offended, chances are you follow that movement from our Father onto that part of the passage, and that means you have a weak identity with God. You are suffering from a lack of understanding of sonship. The more secure you are in your Father's love, the easier it is to forgive other people. People who are hypersensitive probably are not rooted and grounded in the identity of, of God in their life. Probably uh, have not developed that walk of love in Christ. And the more you're assured of his love, it is so easy to forgive other people. It enlarges your capacity. It's amazing. Forgive us now sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Meaning that your communion with God will be affected if you don't forgive other people. Everybody wants God to forgive them, but we don't want to forgive others. We want to hold grudges. We want to have resentment. We want to hate. We want to fight. We want to beat up. We want to wish harm. We rejoice when things go wrong with other people. Well, that shows that you know, we want to have one part of the stick without the other part. When you pick up a stick, you pick up both ends. You can't just have forgiveness with God without forgiving other people. 
I have found that unforgiveness opens the door to the devil, opens the door to oppression, opens the door to depression, opens the door to demonic entities more than anything else. That's why whenever I've done a deliverance with somebody, the first thing I do besides making them pray a prayer of submission to the Lordship of Christ, the second thing I would do after that would be, who has hurt you that you're holding on to? You have to forgive them. And so as you become kingdom-focused, your heart is enlarged. And you can walk in forgiveness in ways that you could never dream. It's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. Wow. And let me tell you something. The more you get into this thing, the more you will have to have a large heart when it comes to love. The more of a leadership responsibility you have, the more prone and exposed you will be to people hurting you, betraying you, flaking out, um, not keeping their word, and, you know, basically provoking you to anger. If you're provoked to anger e easily, go back to our Father and start developing that. Go back to how would be the name. Are you grateful? Are you always complaining? Whatever you celebrate, you draw to yourself. People are constantly complaining, repel people. You may not even know it. There's some people say, I have no friends. I had someone just tell me that the other day. I don't have any friends. I'm thinking to myself, because you're not friendly. <laughs> he who has friends must show himself friendly. It says in Proverbs, whatever you sow, you reap. If you're lonely, then start serving other people. Start being a friend to somebody, and you won't be lonely anymore. And you hear what I'm saying? And so, uh, you know, you get into this thing, then you realize, wow, you better have a deep relationship with God because the more responsibility you have, the more you will be exposed to the good and the bad in human nature. And it's in the church, not just in the world. Uh, but I can, I can land there for, for a long time. I'll tell you, right now that part of the thing of kingdom living and that is missing in a lot of our apostolic circles I think somehow we think that it's not important those of us who preach the kingdom talk about cultural transformation talk about fivefold ministry talk about prophecy healing deliverance a lot of times we're dealing with you know the mountains of culture how we're going to take them we want to be exciting we want to reach we're missiological but a lot of times, we are not emotionally healthy. When you can forgive others, that shows emotional health. I learned a long time ago that spiritual formation has to involve emotional maturity, or it's not true spiritual formation. Spirituality is not just praying in tongues and having power to preach. I remember one time I first got saved, man, I had many rude awakenings. I was saved about six months. And I remember going to the youth meeting. We had a large youth meeting in my mother's church. We had about 300 kids. And uh, I remember this one woman, man, she would really get into it. She would be like this every Friday night, praying and crying and weeping on the floor and and I'm thinking to myself, my God, i got to get close to this girl. I want to get to know God. I want to be with someone who's passionate about God. And I remember after a few months, I finally got introduced to her. And it wasn't like I was attracted to her in that way. It was just I wanted to, you know, have someone who knew God. That's all. She was much older than me, about 10 years older than going to the youth group. I was 19. So I went, and I started getting to know her. And, man, I, I was, like, shocked. I said, man, this woman started gossiping. And talking about other people, and she didn't have a good attitude towards the church. And I'm like, huh? But I see this woman, oh, I love you, Jesus, oh, snotting all over herself and others, and you know, just just crying. And and I realized, wait a minute, just because somebody can preach doesn't mean they're a man of God. Just because somebody can move in the gifts of the Holy Ghost doesn't mean they're emotionally mature. 
And as we look at Scripture, we see the fruit of the Spirit deals more with character formation than it does the power of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, and the like. And those who walk in these things, there is no war against them. How many messages have you heard on the fruit of the Spirit? I've heard more teachings on the gifts of the Spirit than the fruit of the Spirit. Yet Paul said, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I'm nothing. He said, if I have faith to move mountains, if I have knowledge to understand deep mysteries, but have not love, I am nothing. And then he said, love is not eros. Love is not erotic. He said, love is kind. Love is patient. Love is not self-seeking. It is long-suffering. Uh, it, it doesn't vaunt itself up. It, it doesn't just seek its own. And then he, he, he just describes a, a life of maturity. He describes a life that's, that's given to serve others. He describes a life that by choice, by an act of their will, they are kind. When you're rude, you're not a loving person. One of the greatest signs that you are mature is that you are gentle, that you are grateful, that you are courteous, that you defer to other people, and you don't have to be the center of attention all the time. I don't care if you're a high-eye personality, you've got to learn how to harness that thing. It's good that you're high-eye, flourish in it, but don't do it in such a way that you take away from other people. Some people need to be the corpse at every funeral or the bride at every wedding. They suck the oxygen out of every, out of every room they go into. And as you grow, you learn to put that thing under. And so we need to equate emotional maturity and spirituality with kingdom. What good is it if you gain one of the seven mountains and you lose your soul, you lose your kids, you alienate every person, you manipulate, you manipulate, you objectify people, you use them for your agenda, and then after a while, you don't need them anymore. And what about people that are so active that they don't even know who they are? I remember one person was in my car. Every time I was with them, they were on the phone texting somebody. Constantly texting, texting, texting. Either you're with me or you're not with me. When you're with me, put that phone down. When we're eating dinner, put that phone down. And so, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm driving in a car with this person. You're on the phone. And I said, you know what your problem is? And he looked at me. I'm very direct. I don't play games. I said, you know what your problem is? He said, no, what? I said, you are afraid of who you really are. You are so active. You're constantly texting, constantly surfing the web. You, you're constantly listening to music, constantly because you're afraid of being silent and hearing what's really going on inside that soul of yours. One of the most powerful things anybody could do is practice the old discipline of the church fathers of silence and solitude. So this person said to me, well, uh, what should I do? I said, well, I'll tell you what will change your life. I said, try every day to be silent for five minutes. Put your phone away, television, computer, and everything. Take a pad and a pencil and just write whatever comes up. And I said, you're going to be shocked at what comes up. You don't even know who you are. And I said, if you could get to 15 minutes a day, do it. I said, but I doubt you could do it 15 minutes a day. And so part of how we become emotionally mature is that we also become self-aware. We're constantly reading books on spirituality and emotional health and knowing God. I read that and enjoy that even more than theology and things on the kingdom because I know I'm so active that I need to counterbalance my own action-orientated life 
with this kind of stuff so that I don't violate my own soul. I need to be self-aware if I'm going to endure to the end. And then he ends it with saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When I first looked at that, there was a new Christian, oh, man, I'm doing better now. When I first got saved, every other word out of my mouth was F this and this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in New York City, there's a lot of cussing. I mean, it's bad. But when you're doing it all your life, it's like a fish in water. You're not even aware of it. And I remember my wife told me a few years after I was born again, she said, you know, Joe, when we were in those small group meetings, uh, and, you know, you were praying and you were leading a prayer, you were really cussing the devil. Remember that? And, uh, and so I had no idea. It was a subconscious thing spilling over into my conscious life. And, and so, you know, I thought, wow, you know, lead us out of temptation. After, you know, a year or two, I didn't have the same kind of uh, temptations of the flesh, so I thought, I'm doing good. Lead us out of temptation. And I said, wait a minute. The more I grow in the Lord, the more acute and subtle the temptation is. It changes as you grow. And then I realized, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not implies that temptation is not just an act. It is a path. It's a road you're taking. And I realized that the more I grew in the Lord, my temptation was just as strong and devious. Why? Because Satan doesn't come to you in a red suit and a pitchfork. He comes as an angel of light. So now, at this stage of my life, I mean, I can sin just like anybody else, but I don't have any besetting fleshly sins that, that I'm, you know, addicted to or dealing with, but that doesn't make it okay. Now my greatest temptation is that I have too many opportunities, and I have to make sure I'm staying on the path. Lead us not into temptation. You have to ask yourself the question, am I following the assignment God has given me? You might be in church every week. You might be tithing. You might be worshiping. But are you following the assignment? Some people have a cushy job. And, man, they want to stay in that job because of retirement benefits, because of pension. Some people are going to get a golden watch after 20 years. And because of that, they will not move from that assignment. But I'm asking you a question. Are you in the assignment God wants? Or are you exchanging that assignment for stability and security in the natural? One of the greatest fears I ever have in my life is when I stand before God, the judgment seat. Because even Christians will be judged. Not the great white throne, but what's called the beam of seat judgment. Second Corinthians 5.10, talking to Christians who all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for our works, not for salvation. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want Jesus to say, wow, you did a lot of conferences. Hmm. You wrote a lot of books. Man, you know, you have a lot of articles. Wow. You must be proud of yourself. However, I never told you to do that. You were supposed to do this. And you would have had this impact on the world. You chose what was comfortable, what came easy. You didn't take the path of least. You took the path of least resistance instead of the road less traveled. What is your temptation? There might be a time of God called me to transition out of something that I'm in now. I said, well, wait a minute. Well, I don't have money. I didn't ask you to have the money. God says, I want a cattle on a thousand hills. But what about this? What about, uh, you know, God calls us 
to follow him without knowing what the future holds. We just trust in his goodness and know that what he wants is best. He calls us to sign our name on a blank contract and let him fill in the blanks. So are you following God's assignment? That's your temptation. It's a path. It's a road. And then he ends it by saying, the yours is the kingdom and the glory and the honor forever and ever. He starts it with the kingdom and ends it with the kingdom. Everything else is in that sandwich because the kingdom frames everything. It's kingdom living that we're looking for. How many people want to be kingdom people Kingdom living. It includes spiritual and emotional maturity, not just moving to the power of God. How many want that? Let's just pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, God, that we can seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Oh, God. Thank you for your power and your presence. Thank you for the leaders of this house. Thank you, God, that you've given them enduring power to do this for many, many years and it will continue for generations to come as you anoint the new leaders that are emerging now. Father, we thank you for every person here who's not a leader. Maybe they're struggling in their faith. Maybe... They just are trying to hold on to something. And they came to church today trying to get at least one little nugget that they could grasp so they could get pulled out of the water. Oh, God, we pray for that person or people. That you would just reveal your love to them. You'd show them how the kindness of God leads them back in the way how you're not angry with them, how you have orchestrated their steps so that they could be here today and know that you not only love them, but you like them. You want to put them in on your lap and just hug them today. Father, we pray for every person here, for those who are angry, those who are disappointed, those who are depressed, those who are not living a joyful life, and living a life of praise. Father, that you would so envelop their hearts and their minds and their culture and their atmosphere, that you so permeate their hearts today, that you would draw them into this, this journey, this life, this way, that you draw them in. And just let's just put our hands up for a moment. If you want this, just tell God you want to have kingdom living. You want to have kingdom living. Oh God, we worship you. Draw them in. Draw them in. Draw them in. Draw them in, oh God. Thank you, Father. We just seal this word right now, Lord. We thank you that you're moving in people's hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you are the greatest heart surgeon. We thank you, Lord, that your word is doing its work. It's cutting things out that need to be cut out. It's joining things in a new way that need to be joined. Lord, you're knitting some things together. You're allowing new blood to flow through our spiritual heart. Father, I thank you, Lord. This word has an anointing, Lord, to restore hearts, restore minds, and restore kingdom perspective. So, Lord, we seal that work right now. And, Lord, in the coming days and weeks, as Lord, we seek you that you continue to pour in and help us, Lord, to grow this new way of seeing how you want us to operate as kingdom livers and kingdom ambassadors. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's suck. Also show our appreciation.